0: From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's name's sake. The blessing of the Lord was all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to him, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by... Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed.
1: In his book, Playing God, Andy in, in Couch, um, talks about how uh, the spiritual disciplines, so fasting, prayer, uh, solitude, meditation, just the spiritual disciplines, um, he talks about how, how easy they are at face value, that there's no particular skill required to sit alone, right? Or even to pray or to read your Bible. But he says, on the other hand, they're so incredibly difficult that they're perfectly calibrated to reveal our true condition and that they're incredibly hard to succeed at at the same time. And he talks about, he gives this personal story of an example of fasting and food where he offers his own testimony, which is is humbling, as he says. He says, my annual fast during the seasons of Advent and Lent are darkly comical reminders of how completely undisciplined I truly am in my relationship with food. Now, I'll just pause there. Um, We can go beyond just spiritual disciplines to New Year's resolutions. Some of you set them, you've already failed. Some of you set them, maybe you're still having hope, okay? But this idea of putting disciplines out there that we're going to follow. So he talks about this relationship with food. No matter how minimal the fast I set out to practice, one Lent, it was simply leaving milk out of my tea. I find that I am almost never able to keep it to the end. Among the most pitiful moments of my life was that day about two weeks into Lent when I desperately and furtively opened the refrigerator, fully aware that I was breaking the most minimal fast conceivable, but feeling completely unable to go on without milk in my tea. It was the sweetest and the bitterest cup of tea I ever had. And then he goes on to say, when we practice the spiritual disciplines, we discover how deep runs our commitment to our own autonomy and comfort, how we are addicted to the approval of others, the sound of our own voice, and the satisfaction of our appetites. So the question is, how do you remain faithful in the face of temptation, tempted to, satisfy your own desires, tempted to be autonomous, tempted to live your life on your own, to satisfy your desires, all these things. How do you remain faithful when typically when you set something out in front of you, you find that you fail over and over? How do you remain faithful? This chapter in Genesis 39 is a story about faithfulness. And it talks about really three ways that are important for us to to remain faithful in the face of temptation. The first is God's faithfulness. There's a phrase that appears in this chapter four times. It first shows up in verse two. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Shows up again in, in verse three. And then it shows up twice at the end of the chapter after Joseph is thrown in prison. The Lord was with Joseph. Now let's break that phrase down for a second. Who was with Joseph? It says the Lord. Now in your Bibles, it's in all capital letters. That's important. It doesn't say that God was with Joseph or the Lord, lower caps, with with Joseph, but the Lord, all capital letters, which means this in your English Bibles, when you read that word in all caps, that is the covenant personal name of God. It's the name that God gave to Moses when he asked Moses to go back to Egypt to free his people out of awful slavery. And when when God asked Moses to do that, Moses said, okay, God, so when I go tell them, and they say, well, what's his name? What's God's name? What do you want me to tell them? And God says to Moses, you tell them that I am, which means that I'm the living God and you tell them that my name is Yahweh. In other words, he says, I'm a personal God, which to Moses, he was telling this because it would be very important as he goes back into Egypt into a culture that was full of all kinds of gods. And God was saying, I'm a personal God. Why is this so significant? Because the God of the Bible is not an impersonal force that guides your life. Okay, that's what's called fate, that's uh, Star Wars theology. Okay, may the force be with you. No, the God of the Bible is a personal God, a relational God that has a name that can be known. And that's the God that is with Joseph in this story, said over four times in this chapter. Now, let me dial this in a little bit closer and make it maybe a little bit more relevant. A couple weeks ago, we were in my neighborhood talking, my wife and I, to a neighbor, and we were sharing, they asked, he asked, and we shared about what we're going through, our health struggles and how difficult it has been the past couple of months. And he said, he's not a Christian, and he said, everything happens for a reason. Now, that's a common phrase that we say in the midst of suffering. In fact, even believers, and you may say it to people, you may have said it a lot, It's not wrong, but it's a phrase that can be interpreted to fit almost every worldview. It can fit Star Wars theology. May the force be with you. Uh, It can fit into Buddhism. It can fit into Hinduism. It can fit into Islam. It can fit into this New Age spiritualism. Right, that everything happens for a reason. The Bible offers a much deeper resource when it comes to suffering and hardship. Much deeper than everything happens for a reason. The Bible says that God, the personal God who has a name, invites you into a season of hardship and suffering with him. That God says, come with me. In the Joseph story here, just in chapter 39, God invites Joseph into prison. Last week in chapter 37, God invited Joseph into the pit. God invited Joseph into slavery. He says, come with me into a season of hardship and suffering. God says, come with me into unemployment. Come with me into depression. Come with me into rejection. Come with me into failure. Come with me into cancer. Come with me into trouble and hardship. Jesus says, come with me into my suffering. Join me in my suffering. You see, there's a a personal invitation, not just a generic everything happens for a reason, but a personal God with a personal name that says, come with me, and he's with you. I'll take it a step further than last week. I said last week that God does not choose any suffering for you that he doesn't choose for himself. We can take that a step further. God does not invite you to a place where he is not present. God does not invite you to a place where he is not present. You know, one of the questions that comes out of this story of Joseph is, why is he so resilient? I mean, we're not even halfway into this story. You haven't even seen half of what happens. But so far, you read it and go, how does Joseph keep bouncing back. Right about when it gets as worse as it can get, it it takes a turn for the worse. And it's only, it's a gut-wrenching story. It's a tragedy. And you say, how does Joseph not just pull the ripcord? He keeps bouncing back. The reason is, is because what you'll see is that as Joseph's situation constantly changes, it goes up, it comes crashing down. It goes up, it comes crashing down. That while Joseph's situation changes, God's relationship to him never changes. That God's relationship to Joseph is constant. It was the same with Joseph in the pit as it was when Joseph was ruling Potiphar's house. That God's faithfulness is unchanging. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. This is right after he gets thrown in prison. But it's the author's reminder. The Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. You see, God didn't change. We sang it. God does not change. Even when our situation goes up and down, back and forth, that God's relationship to us never changes. Polycarp, he was a bishop of the church in Smyrna in the second century. He was burned at the stake for his faith in Christ at the age of 86, He was the last uh, surviving person that we know of that had a relationship to one of the apostles. He was a disciple of the apostle John. And listen to what Polycarp said. Listen to this exchange moments before he was going to be lit on fire. The person in charge of his execution said, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And this is what Polycarp said in reply. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You realize he's saying that moments before his flesh is about to get lit on fire. He has done me no wrong. Can you say that about God this morning? regardless of what you've been through, can you say, God has done me no wrong? Your answer to that question, your functional answer to that question will reveal whether functionally at a heart level, you believe that God is faithful and that his faithfulness is unchanging. Because if God is faithful, no matter what comes across your plate, no matter what comes into your life, you can say God has done me no wrong and he will do me no wrong. God is faithful. How do you remain faithful in the midst of temptation? That's where it starts. First and foremost, that God is faithful. The Lord is with you. Second though, the second way of faithfulness is your faithfulness, your pursuit of faithfulness to God. And we see it in this story, right? In, in chapter 39. Joseph's faithfulness in the face of temptation is remarkable. It's remarkable. Now, typically we go to the place in this chapter and it's front and center. It's the most visible, it's the most shocking that when Potiphar's wife tries to throw herself on him, right, what does he do? He flees. In fact, this is the Old Testament story that gets kind of coupled with the New Testament command to flee sexual immorality. This is kind of a picture of it. But what I want you to see is that that Joseph's faithfulness in the midst of temptation in this chapter goes far beyond sexual purity or or, or running from sexual morality. That what we're talking about here is a a broad category of being faithful in the midst of temptation. We sing it. One of the songs we sing fairly often, and it's actually the, the title of our conference, Spiritual Life Conference. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. That's what we're tempted to do, right? Big picture, we're prone to leave the God we love. There's a lot of ways that manifests itself. And what I want you to see in this chapter is that Joseph faces really three big categories of temptation. The first is that he's tempted by power and control. Right, he puts him, uh, uh, the Lord puts him in a place of, of amazing power over Potiphar's entire house. And with power comes the temptation to abuse power, right? To use it for selfish gain rather than to use it to serve others, to use it to consume people and goods rather than to serve others. If you participated in community Bible reading this past week, you you read 2 Samuel 11, the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, that's a story that immediately when we hear about David and Bathsheba, we run to what? The sin of sexual immorality of adultery and murder, right? But murder just flows out of the adultery. There's a much deeper problem in David's heart in that story than sexual immorality. That's, that's true, but there's a much deeper issue and that is abuse of power, right? David was the king. He could command anybody to do anything he wanted for him and we see there that David abuses his power. He abuses his power to please self, to serve self at the expense of others. That's the real issue going on there, is it's a power issue. And you and I face the same thing with abuse of power. Husbands, you can abuse your power that God gives you as the head of the house to ruin, to frustrate your wife and kids. Or you can abuse your power at work, right? To make your life very easy and simple at the the expense of those who work under you. Or you can, you can abuse your power as a coach, using players to enhance your ego. Or you can abuse your power as a, as a parent over children, right? Causing them to, to wilt underneath your need for control. We face the same temptation with power and control. Second area of temptation that Joseph faced, and this is the obvious one, by pleasure. He's tempted by pleasure, right? Potiphar's wife throws herself at him, Right In the face of that temptation, it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of what we read in Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7 is a, um, it's a scary, scary chapter to read, quite honestly, because it talks about the seduction and the power of, of an adulterous woman, and it paints a picture of what we see happen here in Genesis 39. Proverbs 7, 7, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him and I don't have to go on very long to talk about sexual temptation in our culture. It's all over the place. Multi-billion dollar pornography industry, Uh, the the more subtle temptation that we see on advertisements, on TV, on the internet, it's all over the place. But what I want you to see here in this temptation is that it's a much much broader temptation. That the the temptation here is really pleasure and comfort. That every one of us in this room understands when you're faced with the pain of a broken world, the stress of a broken world, the anxiety of a broken world that you face, when you're faced with that pain and that stress, that every one of us has this temptation to want to dull it. You just want to dull the pain. You just want to get rid of it. And there's a number of ways you can do that. You can eat your way to comfort. You can, uh, you can exercise your way to comfort. You can watch, your, you can watch TV to get comfort. You can spend hours on the internet. You can buy clothes and gadgets. You can drink lots of alcohol. You can take drugs. You can abuse prescription medications. I mean, the list goes on and on. But what I want you to see is the temptation here. And it's what Joseph faced is this temptation or tempted by pleasure and comfort to dull the pain. And then the last area that Joseph was tempted by is, is reputation, status, and success. Look at what happens in chapter 39. He goes from being ruler in Potiphar's house with a name attached to it to being a prisoner with a slandered name. I mean, look at that. Ruler in Potiphar's house with a name, with success, to in prison with a slandered name. In fact, if you look at the, uh, you talk about identity crisis. Look at the identity, the circumstantial, situational identities that Joseph finds himself in in this chapter. There's there's three of them. One, COO, chief operating officer of Potiphar's house. He was still a slave, but he was COO of Potiphar's house. Then, sexual predator, rapist. Then, prisoner in jail. I mean, look at that. Look at the different circumstantial identities that Joseph finds himself in, in this chapter. And that brings me to the point to sum up this this, uh, you're being faithful in the midst of temptation, is that at the core of temptation is identity. At the core of temptation is identity. We can talk about the tempted by power, control, tempted by pleasure, comfort, uh, tempted by success and reputation and what people think of you. We can talk about all those, but when you boil them down, it is a temptation to build an identity apart from God. It's a temptation to build a name, to make, make yourself worth something apart from God. And we see this very subtly. It's interesting in the first couple chapters here by the cloaks and the robes that Joseph wears. It's really powerful imagery. When you go back to the beginning in chapter 37, Joseph wore a robe, right? It was the robe of many colors. It was the robe his daddy gave him to say, you're my favorite son. And so Joseph put it on and we know he was proud of that thing because he got the dream from God that also gave him favor and he announced it to his brothers with no problem in arrogance and in pride. See, he had, that coat was on him And it identified him as the favored son, the one his dad loved, over and above his brothers. It elevated him up. And then what happened? That coat got stripped off him when he got sent into slavery. Now in chapter 39, he's wearing another coat, isn't he? And this this was the outer garment that would be worn by uh, those that are well-to-do, those that are successful. He was wearing the coat that identified him as the, the COO the ruler of Potiphar's house, successful, well-to-do. And what happens to that coat? It gets stripped off him by Potiphar's wife. You see, Joseph is learning to put aside cloaks. More than that, God's faithfulness to Joseph refuses, God refuses to let Joseph build an identity apart from him. And the cloaks coming off are, 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 are imagery of that. Then he refuses to let Joseph build any kind of identity, identity apart from him. 1 Corinthians 13, 10, 13 to 14. This is you know, one of the go-to verses in scripture about temptation. We read verse 13, we often don't read verse 14. Listen, no temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now here's verse 14. Therefore, in other words, because of this verse, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. See, idolatry is running to other gods to make a name for yourself. Idolatry is running to other gods to build an identity. And God calls us to be faithful to Him, which primarily is refusing to build a self and an identity apart from Him. In a recent interview uh, popular, she's a popular blogger, uh, Jen Hatmaker, was asked this: "Do you think an LGBT relationship can be holy?" This was her response. She said, "I do." And my views here are tender. This is a very nuanced conversation and it's hard to nail down in one sitting. I've seen too much pain and rejection at the intersection of the gay community and the church. Every believer that witnesses that much overwhelming sorrow should be tender enough to do some hard work here. Now, in response to that blog, and before I read the response of a a former lesbian, Rosaria Butterfield, Let me just say this. I'm pulling out this example, and this is about homosexuality. But homosexuality is a sexual sin that is no different than heterosexual sin. It's no different than adultery, okay? So let me make that clear as I pull this example out of sexual immorality. But what's interesting is Rosaria Butterfield, who was a, a former lesbian, came to Christ. Listen to what she says about Jen Hatmaker's comments. She said, if this were 1999, The year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I loved, instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a bomb of Gilead. I would have thought, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline, she's a professor, and in my church. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. And then listen to what she says here at the end, and this is critical, about temptation and identity and what it means to be faithful. She says, to be clear, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. She says, I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved. Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely, did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, This reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin nature deceives us. Sin's deception isn't just out there. It's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. So how do you remain faithful in the face of temptation? It starts with God's faithfulness, that he is with you and his relationship to you doesn't change in Christ. Second, your faithfulness, your pursuit of faithfulness to him. And that and that faithfulness is primarily refusing to build an identity apart from God. And then third. Third, embracing Jesus faithfulness. This is a this is not a story of be like Joseph. This is not the message. The message is not wow, look how Joseph resisted temptation. Let me be like Joseph. No, Joseph and his story is pointing to someone greater. Joseph is pointing to the greater one, Jesus. And if you look at the parallels between Joseph's story and Jesus' life, there are many. Joseph was a deliverer chosen by God, as Jesus was. Joseph uh, suffered unjustly, as Jesus did. Joseph was humiliated before he was exalted, as Jesus was. Joseph forgave the very ones he hurt that he betrayed as Jesus did, right? This story points us to the gospel. It points us to the one, to the person, Jesus, who was faithful in the midst of temptation for us. Matthew chapter four, the spirit leads Jesus out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and the devil tempts Jesus three times. And what's fascinating is he tempts Jesus in the three areas that we just talked about that Joseph is tempted by. The devil tempts Jesus in the area of pleasure and comfort. He says, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. Jesus resisted. He tempted him with power. He said, the devil says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus resisted. And then what's striking is that before every temptation in Matthew 4, the devil, the first phrase he says is, if you are the son of God, and then he goes on. You see, the devil was tempting Jesus at the place of identity. He was tempting Jesus to prove his identity and prove his worth outside of his father. And that's the core place of temptation. It's the same thing that happened in the garden, right? The devil came to Adam and Eve and basically tempted Adam and Eve to find their worth, to find their identity outside of God and apart from God. Of course, Adam failed, and you and I inherited that failure. Jesus was tempted by the same devil. Jesus did not fail, Jesus succeeded. And he was tempted and faithful for you in your place. You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus. There's only two places to be for every person in this room. And if you're in Adam, in Adam, you bear Adam's failure and you bear the inability to resist ultimately temptation. If you're in Christ, which means you've trusted Christ, then you receive Christ's perfect life and his perfect resistance of temptation in Matthew 4. That is yours by faith. That's your record in Christ, that Jesus was faithful for you. Hebrews four fifteen to 16 says this, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are. You hear that? Jesus has been tempted just as you have been, yet was without sin. Let us then, therefore, in light of that, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, in time of temptation. Right, there's the hope. Jesus resisted temptation for you, and in light of that, now you move out and seek him and seek strength to find resistance in the face of temptation. There's a, um, in Greek mythology, the, uh, the sirens were these mythical creatures. They were, from the waist down, they were fish. They're de- depicted as mermaids. Waist down, they're fish. Waist up, beautiful women. And they lived on these rocky islands. And they had beautiful voices. They were I mean, mesmerizing voices. And as the sailors would come by on, on a ship, by those islands, the sirens would begin to sing. And the sailors would be drawn to the voices. And so they would literally fling themselves out of the boat and they would swim to the islands, right, by this enchanted voices and they would all die. They'd get impaled on the the rocky cliffs and the rocky edges to this island. And so in Greek mythology, there's the the mythical hero Odysseus who is about to pass, is gonna go past these islands where the sirens sing. And so he has an idea and he gets his crew to tie him to the mast of the ship bound him to the mast of the ship. And he tells his crew to put wax in their ears. And so as the, as the boat is coming by the islands, the, the, the sirens begin to sing. And it says that Odysseus, was, he was mad with desire. But he was bound to the ship. And his crew was deaf, so they passed by unscathed. There was another traveler that came by. His name was Jason. And Jason decided to bring with him someone by the name of Orpheus, who was a wonderful musician, a beautiful musician. And Orpheus played just a beautiful music. And so as they, as they approached the island, the sirens began to sing. And Orpheus began to play this music. And Orpheus's music on the ship was more beautiful than even the sirens song. And so Jason and the crew went by unscathed. Listen, you can try to avoid temptation. You can try to be faithful to God. You can try to not build an identity apart from him by, so to speak, tying yourself to the mast of a ship. You can put barriers in place. You can have accountability. None of those things that are wrong in and of themselves. But if that's it, you have no chance. The only way that you can remain faithful in the face of temptation is if the song the song of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection plays loudly in your soul. And when Jesus' song is playing loudly in your soul, then, then you have the power to resist temptation and to be the faithful, to be faithful to the one who purchased you. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world filled with temptation. And we understand that the temptation is, there's certain behaviors and things out there that we're tempted by, but ultimately we understand that that at the ground floor, we are tempted to build an identity apart from you. Father, we repent of that this morning. We ask that by your grace, by your faithfulness, that the song of Jesus That his song, his life, his death, his resurrection, the song of his life would play loudly in our souls that we could be faithful. And Father, I pray for those here this morning, maybe some who are still in Adam, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would draw them to Christ. That they would put their trust in Christ and that your perfect record, Jesus, would be transferred to their account by faith. And Father, as we close this morning in worship with a song, we pray that you would lead us to the cross, that you would lead us to that place where our redemption was purchased, where our freedom was purchased, where our faithfulness was purchased. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.